Welcome to Donne Talks, provided to you by Donne, Women in Music. I am your host, Gabriela Dilatiu, and in every episode I interview guests who are amplifying change, people who are using their voices and their positions to create bigger impact in our society. Today's guest is Irish award-winning composer and conductor Imar Noon. Imar writes extensively for film and video game. She is responsible for some of the most enduring soundscapes on World of Warcraft and other best-selling video games. She is known as the Irish Queen of Games Music, but Imar has also conducted the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Royal Philharmonic, the Sydney Symphony, Danish National Symphony, amongst others. So I was looking at this person with complete adoration and he said, what do you want to do with your music degree? And I very sheepishly and quietly and shyly said, I, 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 want, to, I want to be a, a composer and, and a conductor. He burst out laughing and he said, uh, you haven't a chance. He said, you have three things going against you. You're young, you're Irish and you're female. Imar Noon was the first woman to conduct at the National Concert Hall in Dublin. And in 2020, she became the first ever woman to lead the Oscars Orchestra. It's such a pleasure. I think this could only be better if we were actually meeting live here in London. And we will, Hopefully. I'm sure. Yeah, Welcome. we will, Gabrielle. Yeah, I, I can't wait until we can actually be together in the same room because this is, this is definitely getting old, the whole Zoom thing. But... It has enabled us to, you know, talk to each other across, across the world. And, and that's good, I suppose. Yeah, that's wonderful. Certainly it is today. Um, it would be wonderful for you to share with us. How did you become interested in music, in conducting and composing? So where did that come from? And how was the, the beginning of your journey in music? Well, I suppose we, we all probably shared the same, just completely natural fascination. And music to me is, it's a kind of, a, I have always had a kind of visceral reaction to it, you know. And that's always fascinated me is there's this, you know, this thing that I can't touch, I can't feel, feel it with my fingertips, but it makes me feel something that I can't understand why it. I just feel that way. And it's, it's something, you know, you, you go to music college and you, you study music and you, you learn about um, how music is made and how it's constructed. But, but still, we can't really understand why we have this visceral, natural reaction to, to a bunch of sound waves, you know. Um, and why is it different from other sounds that come into our ears? You know, it's if you want to look at the physics of psychoacoustics, those are sound waves coming at the eardrum. And why is music so different from everything else? And why do we have this this feeling our hearts and our brains just light up um, when we hear music? So I'd say like like you and like all of our colleagues, it was just such a natural reaction from a very early age. And for me, conducting and composing, I decided on really, really young. Um, and that's our member, a vivid memory of walking past the TV at about seven years of age and seeing somebody who looked nothing like me um, standing on a podium with, with white curly hair and a, and a tuxedo with tails. And I went, oh, look at that. I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite unusual, isn't it? It's quite unusual because many of us wanted to be, I don't know, singers, musicians, but conducting is 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 unusual for a for a girl, not anymore, of 
now, but I imagine uh, we didn't have as many role models in a, a couple of years ago. Well, I think it's unusual for anyone who, I mean, I didn't come from a, a professional music musician family, a musical family. I came, I came from a very regular um, family in the countryside in, in Galway and in Ireland. Um, but I, I think it's, I think it's really strange for somebody who doesn't come from that world to just decide, oh, that looks amazing. I think I'll do that. I think maybe it was seeing the players and how how the orchestra is just the passion and the the zest for life that was right there. And I I, I can't really, I don't know. I don't know why I asked because I don't know either. I always say that it came with me because I can't, I have no other explanation. And it was exactly like that. The first time I heard opera live, I was transported to this amazing place, this there's something that happens inside of us with, with this specific music, isn't it? It's fascinating too. Uh, yeah, it's a mystery. It, so it is. I don't and, have and to you explain. Know, I love that it's a mystery. Yes, the other thing, you know, we can we can think about, you know, I mean, Pythagoras did all of these mathematical experiments and, and equations based on the, the length of a string and why certain intervals might make us feel certain things. And, you know, it, I just love that it's so esoteric and, you know, that we can't really, it's unknowable in a way. And then we started in, in classical music and then you went to video games as well yeah. as conducting. And how did that journey start? Well, I think, you know, it, it, it was just, I just love the orchestra so much. And again, um, I loved music that made me feel something that I couldn't quite explain. And um, I suppose the, the way into that for me as a kid was program music, like um, the Pastoral Symphony and like Symphony Fantastique and things like that. And I just thought it was so fascinating that not only could I feel a certain emotion, but I could see things in my imagination when I heard the music. And when I was about 17, I was in a composition summer school and I was really lucky. I was the youngest there for two years running and we were writing serial music and we were writing aleatoric music and writing indeterminate, you know, musical structures and things like that. So it was weird. I was very early in my my education as a composer. I was writing um, uh, atonal music. So my sort of my perception of tonality might have been a little bit different. It wasn't, you know, it was, it was a, lot, a lot wider. But um, I remember some of the composers we studied with were really, really spoiled. We had, I mean, Kelly Viajo teaching us, Carlyle Rasmussen teaching us. We had just amazing teachers from all over Europe and South America and the United States and so on. And I, I remember um, Kelly Viajo very vividly reading us his, his um, doctoral thesis. And one of the things he said in there was, um, how contemporary composers can straightjacket themselves by creating so many limitations. So I can't write like this. I can't do that. I can't. I can't use tonality. I can't do this. I can't. Serialism is from its own time. I can't do that. And there's so many things that you can't do that you almost sort of boxed yourself in. I thought that was really, really interesting. I was very young at the time, you know, as a teenager hearing this, and I love his music. That's the other thing. And I got to have a few classes with him and things. And um, I, 
I thought film music for me was a way of just completely blasting that idea to oblivion because I'd have to I'd have to be able to write in so many different styles and genres. And I was interested in that. And I think I thought that, you know, maybe after studying all of these different styles and all of these genres, I'll come back to where I was studying at that point, which was you know, atonal concert music that, you know, I'll, if I go through all of this process, maybe I'll be able to write something more meaningful at the end of the day in the, the atonal space. So that took me to studying film music and not just not just composition for film and what that looks like and what that harmonic language should be like, but also the specific style of orchestration that we use to create a cinematic sounds, soundscape. Um, and I, I was for two years, I was assistant to um, an absolutely stunningly brilliant orchestrator in Los Angeles who orchestrated for, you know, Danny Elfman and orchestrated for uh, he was Tori Amos, who I, I love. He was her arranger. And for, for me, his sound, the way he made the brass section in particular sound was so massive and was so idiomatic the way he could balance um i think this is a lot of a lot of young composers and a lot of um music students confuse instrumentation with orchestration orchestration is is about how you voice a chord across the orchestra and how you use tessitura um to balance something or or, or not or create imbalance but that you do it on purpose is is important and there's certain stylistic um, orchestrational things that we do in, in film music as well. So that, that was really interesting. And I, and I thought uh, orchestration was a great way to sort of practice with other composers and learn from other composers whilst I was, I was learning to be composing myself. But what I'm trying to get back to is how video game music was, to me, another area that used the orchestra. So, of course, any chance for me to write for the orchestra or be with the orchestra or orchestrate, um, I was going to, to, um, to run for that opportunity. And it just so happened that some of the earliest ones in my career came through the video game music um, world. And, uh, and they, um, once the technology got to a, a place where the, the engines had the bandwidth to, to hold all of the information that's contained in an orchestral score, then inevitably that's where the, um, the composers and the directors and producers, in fairness as well, that's where they went. And the, eventually the industry got to a place where they had the budget for those kinds of things as well. And, um, mm -hmm. and then they could reach out to people who were studied composers and orchestrators and, and um, because the earliest video game music was really um, created by programmers who literally had to program every pitch note by note. Um, notable example being um, Koji Kondo, who wrote all the Mario and Zelda music, and still it still does. Um, he had to program it pitch by pitch. But now it's a completely different story, isn't it? This music is fascinating. Yeah. Video game music. Yeah, it's like every genre of music. You have great video game music. You have a lot of good music, and you've some some not so good music. It's it's the yes. same. I mean, what we know as classical music, as in from the classical period. Um, we know all the good stuff that survived. Everything else fell by the wayside. So I'm certain that this new genre, um, it, you know, a lot of it's going to fall by the wayside, but the best of it will will survive and become part of the part part of the orchestral repertoire going repertoire. forward. You have so many projects; it's difficult to talk about all of them. But being a singer, I cannot not talk about the 
Maria Callas, the, the hologram tour. Uh, I really would like to for you to tell me and all of us how did it started, how did the project came about, um, sure. how much did you know about her before? Because for us singers, she's you know she lives in a in a place of her own in terms of you know the yeah. all the feeling and all the drama and the sensitivity and the musicality. You know she was such a complete artist, and I think you had the chance to live with her. I guess through yeah, this project. I, I knew her I knew her work fairly well before this project came about and, and the way I always saw Callis La Divina was as sort of opera's first method actor and I mean that both in the acting and the singing and and she did catch a lot of criticism for put you know pushing her voice to the limit to inhabit a role I mean which is hard for a singer but for the audience it's incredibly um moving and at times thrilling. Um, so this project came about and I was I was very unsure, to be honest, to begin with. Um, I thought, gosh, this could be really strange and weird and, and whatever. And the producer, um, the creative director of Vase Hologram, Marty um, Tudor is his name. Marty said, well, don't talk to us about it. Talk to Stephen Wadsworth, who's, um, who wrote the script. And Stephen uh, is one of the um, heads up the opera department, one of the heads of the opera department at Juilliard, and he directs at the Met and things like that. So I spoke to Stephen and I found that he had exactly the same uh, reservations initially as I did. And I thought he was marvelous. I thought, here's someone who absolutely loves her and loves her art form. And I, I could see by the pieces that he'd chosen as part of the project as well, that it was uh, a very um, well thought out uh, representation of her contribution to the art form, that it wasn't just a whole bunch of showstoppers to be really base about it, you know. Um, uh, and, you know, there were some some opera scenes in there that weren't were, were from operas that weren't as well known. I mean, I I even we, we did a lot of performances with opera orchestras with with very well known in very well known opera companies. And some of the players would say to me, oh, gosh, I've never done I've never played this 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 Macbeth or this Hamlet before or whatever. So. I, I spoke to Stephen, I read his script, and there was one moment in the script that just really hit me hard uh, emotionally. And I thought, um, this is really kind of a love letter to her. Um, and what it, what it is really is a piece of theatre. It's a, it's a concert inside of a piece of theatre. So really, it's the way I imagined it and I interpreted it is, and of course, I, I interpreted from my point of view, it, is that it's like watching a conductor who was born too late uh, live their dream of conducting Callus. And there is interaction between me and the hologram on the stage and so on. The, the other thing that was interesting to me was that it was really pushing technology to the limit, uh, absolutely to the limit, and pull, pull it, pushing synchronization of the orchestra live to the limit as well. It's, I've seen and done a lot of synchronization to picture, to, to dance. I, I conducted for the LA Ballet for a while. You know, all of this stuff. And this is, I'd say it's the most complex synchronization ever created. The reason being Callis was such a rubato interpret she interpreted her interpreted her her pieces and her arias and her scenes so it was so much about the libretto and it was so much about the role that it, it was incredibly rubato. And because we had to tempo map the entire thing, there were no two uh beats equidistant from each other when more than two there were no there wasn't a bar where every beat was 
was equidistant from the one previous, not in the entire entire project, which is incredibly different. She was so great with words, wasn't she? You know, bringing oh, those yeah. words. I, I, oh, God. There's, oh, you know, when she sings a Carmen at the end of the card aria, when she sings Toujours l'amour with the, or the orchestra, just <laughs> that cappella. It just... I had to, the number of times I teared up on stage, you know, because it, the entire project was reminding us, here's what she gave. And she gave everything of herself. Absolutely. And, and just to back. give a bit more, you correct me if I'm wrong, just to give the listeners a bit more of, a, of an idea. So basically you tour with a whole, it's an hour, isn't it? An hour of a hologram of Callas singing live and you conduct the orchestra who accompanies her, synchronizing with her singing. Yes. Is that correct? Well, here's what it is, is they're all her original vocal recordings and the orchestra is live. Yeah. And it, it was so interesting for all of us. So from a technical point of view, the our, our audio person, our engineer had to place us in the same uh, sonic environment, in the same acoustic environment as Callus, no matter what stage we're playing on, no matter where we were. And also not all of her her recordings, of course, weren't all in the same space. Yeah. So he had to not just take whatever environment we were in and put us somewhere else, but wow. into different spaces. And the other thing for us as well was tuning wasn't as codified as it is today, as in, you know, the recording standard for commercial recording is 440 hertz and A440. Um, here in, I'm in Dublin at the moment, the orchestra when they perform live will, will tune to 442. If you're in Germany, it, it goes 443, 444. You can even go as high as 445. Mm -hmm. But in in we found in in this project there were you know the tuning was 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 all over the place and you know that's something that was really <laughs> challenging um because we couldn't stop and and constantly retune throughout mm -hmm. the, the project so um that was one thing the um the, the other thing is orchestras are so so good orchestra musicians are so um versatile and 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 adept and used to dealing with all kinds of situations that just mentioning it to do the orchestras everybody watch out i think this area is tuned somewhere around 435 it's really really low or watch out for this piece or watch out for that piece they adjusted accordingly really really well uh the other things were the synchronization. Um, we would put the show together in two rehearsals. So it was 90, wow. 90 minute program in two rehearsals. Um, and it was an incredible tightrope walk. Um, a touring project that would be that would be fairly normal and um, mm -hmm. it, with a different orchestra almost every time with a different orchestra and some really? I mean we, we did we we performed it with Lyric in Chicago which was really poignant because I believe anecdotally I, I learned somewhere that I think the Lyric in Chicago was the first opera company to give her a job in the United States I'm not sure if that's the one where the competition with Renata Tabaldi was such Tibaldi. That, yeah yeah yeah, and was such that that Callas had to get paid one dollar more in order yeah. to be the highest paid soprano in the world. I love all of this stuff. I love as well the 
the the idea that she had a um she she had a maid who would push her on stage because she had horrible stage fright. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, please don't quote me anyone in their their doctoral thesis, but it, it, these anecdotes I absolutely love. Um, and it was it was incredibly difficult for the orchestras. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And I would always say to them, you will never have difficulty with synchronization ever again after yeah. this project with click tracks with anything like that. This one is one where we have to work really 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 hard in order to make it sound easy and, and it does of- i mean i saw yeah. some clips um online and it, it just looks uh, fantastic it's amazing and it's very very moving i was in tears just looking oh, three four minutes yeah. of it i mean because you just feel so part of it and and she was such a fantastic performer it's almost like she's there i think she would have loved it i think she loves it wherever she is she's she watched it and i think she would be so happy with with this well, project um, it, it comes it comes from the right place and i will tell you this as well you know a project like this is so expensive to create and the fact that they chose a classical artist meant a lot to me i mean it would curl your hair to know what the the technology and what what to, what it cost. And um, it came from a place of love. It came from a place of we love this artist, so we're going to just do it anyway. You know, um, in terms of and then putting an orchestra on the stage each time, it's much easier if you you have a band and you're doing you know a pop star or rock star. Um, you have the a bigger audience as well. And you know the thing is. What would, what's important to me as well is bringing uh, people to hear Callis who wouldn't have ever gotten to hear her. And then they're in, in the same room with people who went to hear her live. It's a yeah. very emotional experience. I'll never forget the Greek National Opera and, and of course, Callis being of Greek heritage. It was so emotional. People were shouting and cheering and crying. And oh, yeah, yeah, it was it was it was really amazing and you know you forget there were times it was once or twice where we broke the fourth wall just to remind people that you know this this mad thing is is theater at the same time but um and and because we could do some really special things because of the technology um but for the most part um it was all about her contribution and as as a musician and you and, and, and as a singer, singers can hear her um, ch- change from role to role, hear the difference in her voice and what she was doing vocally. Yeah. I mean, it's especially stark when you hear Carmen next to anything else. And it, it just kind of blew my mind. And, and, and seeing her play Lady Macbeth and what she did vocally with that, it, it was just um, fascinating. And as I said, Stephen programmed it in such a way that it was truly about her contribution and not just, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, Norma, we, we, of course, of course, of course, we, we, we have to have, you know, Casta Diva and you have to have mm-hmm. um, uh, VC Darte and things like that. Yes. No, is, is, is the tour still going? I well, not now, but will it continue um, after? Well, you know what? We we had an amazing year lined up, believe it or not. Um, a really, really special year lined up for, for the Callas project. And of course, it got grounded. And I want to say as well, um, I really, really miss not just the orchestras and the music and everything, but but our crew that put it together, that traveled all over the world. They're all, you know, they've all been fur- furloughed and um you know our tour manager they're, they're like you know when you know what it's like when you tour you're, you're you have your family at home and you have yeah. your tour family and um it's hard on your heart when when everybody all of a sudden you're about to go out on the road together and 
everybody all of a sudden is um, separated. And our tour family was just really, really, really special. I mean, we had a multi Grammy award winning audio, um, our, our front of house um, audio guy and our tour manager uh, toured with absolutely everyone imaginable. And we were a family, but and still are. But but please God, we'll be back on the road again soon. I can't tell you anything because nobody knows anything. Nobody knows. I know. Um, we will. You will. But uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's just yeah, it's it's crazy, isn't it? It's just been. It's crazy. crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's really crazy. Yeah. I mean, we can only. I think the world, and I think uh, we are recording this in December. I think everybody has been trying to stay positive. You know, it's amazing to see the artistic world out there. But I think now we 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 all want this to end more than yeah. anything. That well, to- you know, you know what we we have resilience built into all of us. Yeah. You know, we're all so used to adapting, and I mean, artists are. I don't think we we ever get credit for it or give each other credit for how adaptable we are in our careers and how we you know, we go with the flow and we, we make things happen when things aren't flowing and that leads to other things. And, and I think the rest of the world learned what that feels like um, when everything went crazy. And now I think, you know, we've been making things out of nothing and now it's time to, to get our full power back and our resources yeah. back and, um, and being together. There's nothing like the energy that we get from each other you know yeah, that's that's a that's a big irreplaceable one. yeah yeah that's really difficult to substitute sometimes people ask me I get this question a lot in interviews oh well how do you keep going um some and then you feel for me it's always I don't have a choice not to keep going you know this is who I am <laughs> you know if I stop making music uh, it, it's it's a huge part of me who dies so uh, yeah we we gain so much from this art from this sharing that stopping or even so we have to be inventive we have to be creative but it's been tough for everybody even with with all our ideas and this has not been easy for for the artistic community you know you know if you if you've ever read any of those pop psychology books and they, they always say you are not your work you must separate the person from the work and I was like mm. clearly this person does not know artists yeah no exactly. because doesn't apply. And, especially, and especially for singers I mean you are literally your instrument and we can't separate and I I mean it sounds intellectually it sounds like a good idea oh I might beat myself up as much if I could separate the work from myself but then again the whole point of having an artistic voice is that that mm. voice comes from a place that is purely you and that is made up of all of the elements that are you. And that's what makes it art and not we're not artisans, we're artists because yeah. you, because you're you, are unique straight away as an artist. Exactly. Um, and uh, and even singers even more so because literally your artistic voice is literally your voice. Um, and that coupled with the intellectual voice for the rest of us, it's a, it's about for composers and conductors. It's about the intellectual voice. But yeah, we, I, I don't think we we should separate. No, we can't. It's impossible. Work. We can't. We can't. <laughs> it can be overwhelming sometimes, but it's how oh, it yeah. is. You, you, yeah. you don't. You don't. And people are oh, but you're gonna have a holiday. I'm like, 
yeah, I'm going to holiday, but you, you don't really have a holiday from being an artist. No. You're always creating, you always have an idea, right. you're always thinking of something, you want to practice. It's, so it's... Yeah. If you can sit on a beach for two weeks, good luck to you. Because yeah. um, <laughs> that sounds like the most boring thing imag imaginable to me. I, I can't well, do... Well, I, I wouldn't say no to a beach right now because I miss the sun being Brazilian. <laughs> if you're enjoying this podcast, there are three simple things you can do to support our work. First, subscribe. This way you will never miss an episode. Second, Tell about us to a friend or a family member. You always have someone to share the stories of this interview. Third, give us a review on iTunes or whatever other channel you subscribe. This way, you will be helping others to find our podcast. Now, let's go back to my interview with Imar Noon. Imar, I want to talk about role models, which is what, in the end, brought us together today uh, I started this project Donne Women in Music because I realized this huge gap in my musical education uh, with you know the invisibility of so many women in this case women composers but then you start realizing women full stop women uh, in in a history in in history generally speaking but for for me as a singer as an artist as a musician I wanted to do my little part to amplify not only the women of today, but the women of the past. And before you talk to us about your current role models, I really want, us, I want you to tell us about one of the invisible women in your life, which is Alicia Needham. Uh, would you like to tell us who she was? Yeah. And when did you find out about her and many others? How was, I don't know, my, I, I found out in around 2014, 2015, a huge gap. And I felt very ignorant of, of knowledge yeah. in terms of music and all the women who could have been my role models when I was, you know, pretending, aspiring to be a classical singer in the south of Brazil, knowing no one who ever done that, uh, you know, I would have loved to have heard those stories. How that, was it? That's a shocking feeling, isn't it? It's a it's horrible awful. feeling where yeah. all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, how do I not know about this yeah. person? First, you first you feel ignorant. And, oh, I must just not know because I haven't done enough reading or research. And then, then it's like, well, why, why do I have to be so specialized to actually know this yes. person existed? You know, so I remember years ago finding a greeting card that I bought and it said, um, for hundreds of years, Anonymous was a woman. And it really stuck with me. And I, um, I was putting together a program of women composers, a concert program, and I put something on Facebook. This was about two years ago at most. And, you know, there's so much, so much great music out there. But uh, a school teacher of my brother's, which is an all boys school in the West of Ireland, came it just put it, put something on my Facebook um, messages and saying, don't forget Alicia Adelaide Needham. And I, I, I thought, who's that? Who? <laughs> Who? Yeah. So Alicia Adelaide Needham was the first, and, and the other thing was, I mean, let me just leave her name out there for a second. I'm going to go back to, to my coming up. And I said, you know, when I saw that conductor on TV, he looked nothing like me. And I grew up not seeing anything like me coming from Ireland, who was doing the, the dual things that I wanted to do, conducting and, and composing. And I'm lucky, actually, that I chose those because um, I, I have a... a 
a connective tissue disorder, actually. Um, my hands are, are pretty horrible. I could never be a string player or a, um, a concert pianist. But um, I, I couldn't see anyone like me that was doing those two things. So, you know, you have conductors who conduct and that's what they do. If you compose, you compose and that's what they do. But I wanted to be as, you know, I wanted to roll up my sleeves and have my hands stuck in the music just as deeply as I could get into, into it. Um, and to me, that was that was composing the music and then conducting it after the fact. Um, so I couldn't, you know, I thought I was, you know, I was anytime I did a master class, there was me and 10 guys or maybe one other girl. And the normal number was about 12. So there'd be me, maybe one other girl and 10, 10 guys. And all the while, this woman had existed that I knew nothing about. And it makes me kind of angry, to be honest, because... Uh, if I had known about her, um, when I was confronted with um, a conductor and a statement of, of absolute misogyny, really, I could have just, all I would have to do is say her name and it would have taken away all power from his words. I was, I was 19 and um, I was studying music at Trinity College, Dublin, um, and I met a guy that I had watched on TV here in Ireland growing up. Uh, who's a con conductor and you know I sort of idolize these people and looked at them starry-eyed and oh he he's doing what I want to do and I'm certain that you've seen young singers look at you that way which is you're living the dream you're, this is your job this is my greatest wish in life you know and when you're that age you know you're not thinking oh I want to uh, have a big fancy car and a giant house so therefore I will study classical music said nobody ever you know <laughs> you're so driven by your love for the music and wanting to be a part of it so I was looking at this person with complete adoration and he said what do you want to do with your music degree and I very sheepishly and quietly and shyly said I I, I want to I want to be it a composer and a conductor sheepishly and shyly what saying it as if I just thought of it when I'd wanted to do that since I was about seven yeah. um and uh he burst out laughing and he said uh you haven't a chance he said you have three things going against you you're young you're Irish and you're female exactly. and later on I said to look myself, at me now <laughs> later on I said I said to myself thanks for giving me the perfect title for my autobiography good man <laughs> um but uh at that moment I'd love to have said because I was a fairly feisty teenager but bear in mind I'm looking at someone that I looked up to so much and it really hurt and at the same time he was completely promoting the career of of a guy who was the same age as me and giving him lots and lots of opportunities and and uh strangely enough we both ended up in the same place um on a very very special composition program competition thing years and years later but um i'd love to say that i i was really feisty and stood up for myself but i didn't i was really hurt and i thought you know maybe he knows something i don't you know and uh it didn't occur to me until that moment that I couldn't be a conductor or a composer. I think maybe it was growing up in the countryside or whatever. It just never occurred to me. And I could have thrown, well, what about Alicia Adelaide Needham? Not only was she a, a conductor, she was the first woman to conduct at the Royal Albert Hall. Have you ever conducted at the Royal Albert Hall? No, but she did. Um, 
she won a, a massive international composition competition that was uh, patronized by King George. She um, uh, was a suffragette. She was just an amazing, amazing character. So, uh, <laughs> so Trinity College Dublin. Isn't it extraordinary that she disappears from? Well, it's if not I, that long what, ago, is it? <laughs> no. And what what unnerves me is that if I want to study her work, I have to go to I think Oxford University have have some of her work. But I mean, her, she needs to be in um, on the music curriculum here. At least her story needs to be told. And uh, also, you know, we need to have, uh, I have a little bit of a bee in my bonnet about Alicia Adelaide Needham. I want to see a bust of her at the National Concert Hall. And I, I, I got that idea because Trinity College were looking, was looking for suggestions for the, the, the old library. And this, this is, um, <laughs> I'll tell you my two suggestions. <laughs> One was Alicia Adelaide Needham. And the other goes back to that greeting card, which said for hundreds of years, Anonymous was a woman. So my suggestion is, can we just in plaster cast, just have a naked pair of boobs, please? Because that is, that is we need the anonymous, literal bust of all of the women writers and composers who felt that nobody would take their, their work seriously or even listen to it or even read it if they had a female name. And let's be provocative and let's let's talk about it for I hundreds of Fantastic idea. <laughs> well, you can, oh, you can. Gosh, I think we should have both. <laughs> Definitely the, the, exactly. the bus. Exactly. And yeah. we should have one in each town. Country. We should have one in every house. So they should have miniatures yeah. on every fireplace. Anonymous. You know, I it's out yeah. in the world now. Your idea. You yeah, know. well, look at you know, it, it's it's serious and it's funny and it's seriously fun. And you know, I do believe that at this moment in time, post the Me Too movement, I think we we um we do have a little bit of an obligation to the ones that have gone before us and the ones that are coming uh, yeah. behind. Um, so that, so that my, my thing is uh, the, the video game music thing, one of the really amazing byproducts of that, that, that I had no concept of was the audience is so young that when they see a woman conducting the orchestra, they don't know that it's unusual and they will never for the rest of their lives see it as unusual if they go and hear Beethoven or they go and and um, hear Sibelius or whatever after that uh, it's just normal to them and that's where that's where we want to get to is it where it's not special exactly it's, it's we don't we don't want to have say women composers or women conductors it's just conductors no. No, I, I get asked about that a lot. And I used to, when I was a younger composer, I'd say, oh, don't call me a woman composer. Uh, just call me a composer. However, you know what? There, there is a period of time where we need to embrace that in order to get to the next level. And I do believe in um, affirmative action. I learned a lot about affirmative action in the United States where uh, positions are specifically, spots are specifically created for, uh, and I hate this expression, women and minorities, because women are not a minority. We're half no. of the population people, gee. Um, but that they specifically create these spots. And the idea is not to, um, the, the idea isn't about 
um, giving people who, in inverted commas, don't deserve it or aren't as qualified or anything like this. It's so that when, when people are on a team, diversity matters. Looking at a problem from, look when, when you have 10 people looking at a problem and looking for answers, if they all come from the same background with the mm. same frames of reference and the same experiences, they're all going to be looking at that problem in a similar way. Any diverse team I've been on has just been so enlightening, so fun, and and has come, you know, has the best results because everyone's looking at the same problem from a completely different perspective. So that's what affirmative action is about. It's about having people of different perspectives on a team, but also normalizing things like, I mean, you know, if your if your neighbor or your teammate is of a, a specific religion or culture, or whatever, you learn about that culture through them. And it's also not something, it's not this otherism, which is they're other, there's something to be feared. It's a very base human instinct that's very tribal, which we don't need anymore. So I believe in affirmative action. So if calling me a woman composer or a woman conductor for a time is of use to normalizing the situation for the future, then uh, so be it, you know, Um, I don't. And also, I am a woman composer. I'm an Irish composer. I am a you know, a a composer who's the only girl in a family of boys, you know, all of these, all of these elements make up who we are as people and who we are as artists. So they're all true. They're all true. And they're all to be embraced in finding our own voice. Um, And being a mother is part of, for me, is part of my experience, my experience as a woman. So that does influence my work as a, as an artist. So it is, um, all of the labels are important and unimportant at the same time. Is yeah. that's makes that's complete, you know, if that makes any sense. They're all it true. Does. They all make it who we are. But they're not the only I mean, I've had stupid things said to me over the years as well, which is, you know, you, there's that too. I had uh, one orchestra manager who was actually a woman say to me, of all the women conductors we've had, you're our favorite. And I'm like... <laughs> you even realize how stupid a statement that is i don't think they do actually that's that's the thing people don't realize they actually don't yeah musically and intellectually um i could have way more in common with a male or a trans colleague than i do with a female colleague you know it it doesn't you're you're telling me that of the other 50 percent of the population i mean that that's that's a that's a massive number of people so musically, I might have, I'm being a completely different, uh, yeah. I might have completely different opinions or, or, or style or, or whatever, and technically. Um, so I think that's, it's, that's so, it's, so, it's also so interesting to, to hear you talking about things like that, because we are used to see you uh, from the screen walking in the Oscars, beautiful, like, powerful woman in front of that orchestra, video game lives, you know, lights, action, the gowns, you know, every, it's very easy to think that your life or my life or any artist's life is just glamour and everything is amazing and easy. And, you know, you don't suffer any prejudice. Your daily life is extremely easy everything is you're just flying on the clouds so um how is it in real life (laughs) i was 
holding the laugh in while you're speaking to not <laughs> Come to interrupt. On. You, you are known as the Irish queen of game music, of oh. one of your titles. No, so some journalists came up with that. That's, that's, you it, know. It, it did the, stick. The, you see it everywhere. And, I, and it's true. <laughs> we and it's we true. have to have a sense of humor about these things, you know. I'm it, in the presence of royalty and I'm, I'm not joking. Yeah, really. I mean, I know. Yeah, <laughs> No, no, no. Um, joke, jokes apart, you, you are an amazing artist and I am completely, I have great admiration for you. So I, I'm not using this as a joke at all. You deserve your title. But tell us when life is not all glamour, how... Sure. Well, most that's most of the time. Is you're, you're looking at me now, no makeup on. I have a, a hoodie that my brother got free at work. You know, this is this is how I mean, people are talking about COVID wear and loungewear. I'm like, that's normally my day to day uniform you're talking about. You know, it, it's to me also, it, it's two separate people. The person that sits at home and studies scores and writes is is a different person. Not well, it's a different part of me that goes out and performs. And my my belief is that I serve the the audience, I serve the public, and uh, um, that's different from artists who who believe that. Well, if I'm if I'm having a great experience with the music, then the audience will. That's a, it's a different. If you can get both of them happening at the same time, that's fantastic. But I see myself definitely in service of the public, and that's part of the reason why um, you'll see me stylistically all over the place. Uh, and and also I'm stylistically all over the place because my own musical curiosity. I mean, one of the most valuable lessons I learned um, in as a conductor was working with Gladys Knight and her band, um, learning about groove, which I then bring to Stravinsky and bring to to classical music. But learning be, being with great musicians of other genres and other musical worlds is so important to me and it's so eye-opening and it's it's so heart-filling and there when you're with excellent artists from different genres you can't but learn from them because it's a different they learn music in a different way they feel music interpret music hear it in a different way and being inside of a different musical world means that I can I can look at at the classical world from a different perspective. I actually, w one conductor that I, I feel really, really did that well was was um, uh, was Bernstein because you can hear the way he wrote that he understood jazz and that he understood um, the groove and the pocket, as jazz musicians will say, and where where to place the the what if what you know the jazz musicians will also talk about feel. And you know what it's like when when the music is just when the feel is just right. You, it's almost like you can't put a, a foot wrong, or you can't you can't place a note in the wrong place. Everybody's in the same in the same in the same space. But I feel like in in studying conducting, we never really spoke about groove and and feel and things like you know the pocket, um, as in the space the space that that in which you can place a beat on the top, on the back, on the, you know, all of these things. If you listen, a great example of, of that is um, uh, Bernstein conducting his own overture to Candide with the New York Philharmonic. The very last part of that where the trumpets are so far on the top of the beat, feels like they're going to fall over. And it's it's so exhilarating and thrilling. I, uh, yeah, stylistically all over the place because 
I'm curious and I want to see, I want to create something for the audience that's a, a concert experience where they'll go and, and they'll have a, a whole experience, not, not just of the music, but visually we have to acknowledge the fact that if the, the audience is sitting in an audience looking at the stage, there's a visual experience, whether we like it or not, even though we live in the music in our heads or live in our heads. And uh, for me, working with um, designers and things to create something that reflects the music, sometimes I get it right, sometimes I don't. But the whole idea of being an artist is that we have courage to try things and sometimes it fails sometimes it works um but to go to get somewhere on the journey that the audience can be on the journey with us as well and that can um experience something full of that's full of life you know um yeah. you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna wear some i i just did a, a, a filmed a concert with the rt national symphony orchestra of ireland um with a mask on and socially distanced and it was it was bizarre but it was incredibly emotional because the brass and percussion hadn't played together since March I said to my designer friend Claire Garvey you know I feel like this is us coming back can you create something inspired by the phoenix you know and she did and it's it also takes it also takes some nerve to stand in front of an orchestra (laughs) in one of her creations But it's about, it's not about oh my God. the I audience. Told, I, I told her I want to live in her dressing room because she posts on Instagram pictures of her uh, workroom. Yes. <laughs> just say, can I go and live there? And I, can I try everything? Yes. <laughs> it's just, oh, it's a, and just so we, Claire Garvey, this amazing yeah. designer. We have to get in you into her, into her place in, in Dublin. It's like, I will, I will. I already oh, told yeah. her. <laughs> I, th- I think when you talk is uh this is fascinating for me as well because um i don't know if it's in classical music but certainly in my education we were told to focus in one thing and normally you know no 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 you can't do baroque and opera because it's going to confuse the agents or who's going to hire you but you know my voice mm-hmm. could do both and i could do contemporary music and i never wanted to be uh you know put in one cage and i i didn't yeah uh and then you a composer you're a producer you're a speaker you're a conductor and um it sounds to me that you do that as well over the musical genre as you just described it which i i for me music is music and i don't think we should create this closed community of oh this is only classical and and it's funny because you know leonardo da vinci all the great genius you admire they were all polymaths as 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 you describe yes. as you are uh, and but we were I, I, I don't know do you think classical music still has this sense that we have to focus in one thing sometimes? you know what when you're talking about agents and and management and things like that yeah i i definitely i avoided I avoided management for a really long time um, because anyone I spoke to, they either wanted me to go all one direction or, or all the other. And um, also, it's really important to find the right match. I'm, I'm so lucky. My Emma Parrott is my manager and I just love her so much. She doesn't ever try to push me in a direction I don't want to go in and you know... That's really also, priceless, isn't it? Oh, it's so great. She's just she's family at this point you know and also the way the way they supported me through pregnancy as well I mean just completely you know this is the kind of management that invests in you 
as as an artist going forward on the long in the long term and and builds helps you to build a career over the long term and sometimes that means turning things down because it's not the right time yeah. or you're not ready or you've got some you you're you're focusing in a different direction or whatever i i feel incredibly incredibly lucky but but like that i it was a very concerted decision not to go with with other, with other people and uh, one of the things was exactly as you said um getting pigeonholed so so the the thing was in in my world it's like you're either you're either classical or you're pops now there, there's a I would call myself a crossover artist because I I mean when doing the callous project I everything of course is is classical and then doing you know I just did a project called Pure Imagination where I combined film music and video game music because it's all about storytelling and um, it was all about going into your imagination and being part of a story um, so so for me it's it's about concept it's about curiosity it's it's what I want to create for the audience and being a producer I think I think really whether you, whether they want to admit it or not most most performers are producers on some level but owning up to that and saying you know I have space in my schedule why don't I just make my own thing create my own thing and it's kind of more of a headspace than anything of mm-hmm. I can do it I can make that happen you know you can you know you can at the very least you can put on a recital get together mm-hmm. with it with uh, as I'm, I'm just focusing on say a singer instrumentalist get together with it with a, a, a pal and put on a recital but that's producing you're producing at that point and then it's where you go from there with it. If you've been doing, and, and this is the kind of stuff that I do, which is, oh my gosh, I've been doing so much video game music. I need to do some classical music again. And people, you know, they always talk about the video game music thing. One of my first jobs in Los Angeles was with Los Angeles Ballet, you know, um, conducting nine performances of Nutcracker with them. Um, so I've been all over the place Um that's what keeps me alive and keeps me excited about music and curious. But like that, one of the things I will do in order to not get pigeonholed is go purposely when I'm on a downtime from a tour or from a film or whatever, I'll go in a completely different direction. I mean, we just did, uh, my husband and I just scored my first animated feature and that's totally different again. Um, Yet everything I learn from conducting everything I learned from orchestration and from contemporary composition is all in there you know Mm -hmm. I mean it's one of the great things about animation is you you just get to use every facet of your skill as a as a composer and and as a conductor because you're in the studio and there's just for animation there's a different tempo every couple of bars and then there's a you know your, your your recording technique has to be right on or you'll you'll be in the studio for weeks which we can't do it's too expensive um so it's all it's all part of the same thing to me as you said music is music um yeah. I just want to become a better musician all the time. And I'm always working on that. Um, the other thing is if I feel, I mean, we've all had this experience where you perform a specific piece and you are a different musician forever after making it through that piece. And it doesn't mean you make it through the piece perfectly. It might might have been the stumbling blocks in the piece that change your musicianship forever. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example. One, one of the pieces that did that for me as a conductor and as a composer and just just mentally, musically, was um, conducting Least Toward the Soul at Stravinsky's Soldier's Tale, um, which is only seven musicians. But it is difficult because 
Stravinsky, the way in this piece, he, he changes meter and then he slurs across the bar lines to try and create a sort of Senza Mazura effect. Mm -hmm. So there are mm -hmm. times when you're in 5-8, but you're the conductor and you're the only person that sounds like they're in 5-8. Nobody else sounds yeah. like they're in, you know, and he'll purposely obfuscate the bar lines, which is really, really interesting. Um, but I remember doing a couple of performances of that as a as a student I think it was second year in college and I was not the same musician ever again after after performing that but mm. I will do that if I feel like I'm I'm get I need to push myself further I will I will find a piece that I feel does that or I'll I'll, I'll find a project that's going to force me um to to extend uh, I would like first of all to thank you again for making the time to be here with me and with all of us I would like you to finish with some um, advice or any person who wants, who's out there today thinking of becoming something that they cannot see themselves doing for some reason or for lack of representation or because they think they, they shouldn't or they couldn't do. What's your advice for Well, first, I want to thank you, Gabriella, for what you're doing for, for composers, for, for invisible female artists, you know, for, I mean, it, it means so much to me what you're doing but it means so much to me in terms of what you're doing for future generations of female artists that just this awareness and you know we, we have we often talk about um, artificial intelligence and how artificial intelligence will select images of men just because that's the the predominant um image that's out there in certain careers and things like that but um the advice i would give is really really go deep inside and embrace everything that makes you you and your tastes and and what and you know you're not all going to be the same person all the time you're on a journey and this is sounds like total trite platitude but i have to tell myself this all the time be okay with where you are on the journey right now today i'm okay with where i am today I'm going to look back in a year and go, I am where I am because I went through this at that point. You have to be okay with where you are today. I'm going to be a better musician in a year because I'm working on it. The, 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 all that matters is that I'm moving forward. I'm moving forward. I'm moving forward. But I'm okay with where I am today because it's part of my 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 development as an artist. I mean, you can listen to Stravinsky conducting early performances of symphony of psalms and then you can hear him doing it years and years later and you hear a completely different performance that's make what that's what makes what we do art because we are developing as humans and we change over the course of our lives that's what makes it art it's different throughout the course of our lives the other thing is failure you have to be okay you have to be okay with failing you have to have to have to one of the things about conducting that's very humbling is that you have no choice but to fail in front of the orchestra to learn how to be a good conductor. You have no choice but to practice in front of 80 musicians or 90, whatever, all of whom have postgraduate degrees in music. And you have to be okay with failure and you have to be okay with your place on the journey. And um, that's what I would say. Um, be okay with where you are right now. So long as you're moving forward, it doesn't matter how quickly you're moving forward. Everybody develops at different rates in different areas. Be okay with failure and embrace what 
that brings to you, that failure. If I will analyze things and say, that wasn't so great there. That wasn't, how do I make it better next time? What do I need to change about me? Um, or, or the other thing is, was it me? It's not always, that's the other thing. It wasn't, <laughs> it's not always you. <laughs> um, so yeah, find your own voice. Embrace everything about you that is you, that's unique. Make it part of your voice and allow that to change over time. Be okay with failure and be okay with where you are on, on the journey right now. Thank you, Imar, and for your art, for your passion, for being here today and see you soon, very soon, I hope. Absolutely. I look forward to a nice glass of wine with Gabriella in London soon. Oh, yeah. Or in Dublin. For listeners wanting to learn more about Donne and everything that we do, please visit our website on www.donne-uk.org. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes to subscribe. And while you're there, it will be great if you could rate and review the show and spread the word on social media. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to being with you in our next episode.